0: Stand for the reading of the word this morning. It's in Ezekiel chapter thirty-six, starting at verse sixteen. And just a note on this reading: we uh, we see here that uh, the word "unclean," and that's not a word that we use a lot, at least not in the biblical way. But it's comparable to the way we use the word "sin" today. And um, it it was a It was a a a breaking of the ceremonial law in the old testament and that was a reminder to the children of israel that their outward acts were uh, a representation of their inward need for holiness Um, and so uh, that's just be thinking about that as we read this and then also showing how god and his grace um, worked not because of what they did but just his sheer grace in restoring them So uh, let's read Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a, a woman in menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Father, thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God, that you keep your covenant not because we keep ours, but because of your great love for us. Father, I pray that uh, we would give you all the glory and honor for all the mighty works that you've done, not only the ones that we see in scripture, but the ones that you continue to do today. Father, I pray that you would bless just now the preaching of the word as Pastor Nick comes up. I pray that you would, by your spirit, work in our hearts to encourage and convert and convict that we may uh, see and hear from you today. I ask these things in Christ's name, amen.
1: You'll turn with me. We're back in Mark chapter 7. I'm going to be reading from verses 14 to verse 23. But before I do that, I just want you to look back up at verse 5 where the scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus a very particular question. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Last week, we saw Jesus answer that first question, why he doesn't teach his disciples to walk in the traditions of the Pharisees. And the reason why is the traditions of the elders that they taught people was contrary to God's law, contrary to God's word. And that was really the fundamental problem that they had was that they taught a way that was out of sync with the word of God. And fundamentally, if we're going to see how we are to live, we need to be living in accordance with God's word the shorter catechism Uh, question 14 gives us a definition of sin that sin is any one of conformity unto or transgression of God's law not just man's traditions we don't live up to God's ways and we don't follow the explicit commands of what God tells us to do that's our biggest problem not following just some tradition that was made up by a human being. But there's another aspect of that question that Jesus has not answered yet until our text, which is the problem of unclean hands. Because the particular tradition that Jesus had not told his disciples to follow was that he told them, verse 5, but they eat with defiled or unclean hands. That's the, what our text now addresses. And I want you to listen out for that word, unclean, as we read. This is God's word, starting at verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our God. We thank you that you have revealed to us what you require and what our biggest need is and i pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your word that when we see our need as sinners and we have them unveiled before us this morning that our response would be by your holy spirit to run to christ for the cleansing of our sin the removal of our guilt and our hope of heaven in the hope of eternal life. We love you, Lord, and we praise your holy name. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week, I was already kind of ahead of myself on the whole Reformation Day thing, but now we're just a day ahead, so I definitely don't feel like I'm going springing on you too early. Do you know what happened? October 31st 1517 what marks that date why that's special in history it's the date of the protestant reformation now it's not a date that you could say that if you were there you would have really known that the start of something so revolutionary was about to happen because really it was just a some monk who was a teacher in a small town of Wittenberg, Germany, who had gotten fed up with a system that he saw corrupting the lives of his people and taking advantage of them, where people were being told by their churches, by pastors, by people who should know better, that they could purchase their salvation by indulgences, that they could spend money giving it to the church And then as a reward, they would get back salvation. Time off either their time that they're going to spend in purgatory, another unscriptural idea, or the time off of purgatory for one of their loved ones. And what Martin Luther did is he basically posted on October 31st of 1517, is he posted 95 arguments that he was willing to defend in the middle of the courtyard in front of everyone, 95 points of why that practice was wrong. And what that started, really the root of what that movement was and why Martin Luther said that the Roman Catholic church was wrong in this issue was he made the fundamental distinction that we saw last week was that he saw that there are some things that are passed down and taught to us as if they are God's word and have God's stamp of approval on them. And there there are other things that are truly teachings derived from God's word. And both of those things, do not have the same equal weight. What's passed down as mere human tradition might be wise advice. It might be a good interpretation of scripture and therefore helpful. But in and of itself, the only thing that can tell us what God truly wants us to believe or how God truly wants us to act has to be rooted in scripture. And that was the same problem the Pharisees had. The Pharisees had a problem with Jesus implicating their traditions in such a way as they were not equal with God's word. But Martin Luther wasn't really writing about the authority of scripture and any of those points of the 95 Theses. What he was writing about was a surface level issue. The implications of that. And what came to a head at the Reformation, what distinguished Protestants from Catholics, was a really practical issue. It was the issue of justification. How people are made right before God. And that it's done, that we're made right before the living God by faith alone. That God doesn't look at our merit to see that we're worthy of eternal life and then rewards us for it, but that the only way a sinner can have a hope of heaven is by faith in all that Christ has done. And you might be thinking to yourself that this is really not related to one another, what we're dealing with in our text about the issue of cleansing and cleanness and defilement. But it's actually very closely related it's not the same exact issue when looking at how someone is saved basically we're asking the question of how can a dirty sinner be made clean the text and the question that's posed in these verses though is how can a sinner how is a sinner defiled in the first place How is someone made dirty? This small section from verses 1 through 23 repeats the word tradition five times, but it repeats the word unclean seven different times, showing that this is really the focal point. This is what what was the issue that Jesus is aiming at and getting to. And what he's dealing with is something that I think that we all have a sense or a feeling of. Have you ever felt dirty? That you can't, you take a bath and you just can't wash it away? When we talk about dirt and we talk about filth that just can't be washed away, what are we talking about? We're talking about sin. We're talking about guilt. See, what Jesus points out is something that should have been so obvious to the Pharisees that true uncleanness is not about washing hands or getting dirt off. Obviously, it's not not about hygiene, but it's not even about what the Pharisees thought it was, which was ritually just keeping all the rules. The issue of uncleanness is about sin, defined by God's law, but it really does make us unclean. The problem should be obvious. The problem is sin. And he directs his disciples to think about this by first telling them a parable and then explaining it. That's what Jesus does with all his parables. And if we look down, the parable is pretty simple. He says in verse 15, that there's nothing outside of a person by going into him that can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And the fact that what he's dealing with here is not about simply food, but is about a moral quality is seen easily when we look at the list that he provides once we get to verse 21 through 22. When what he says corrupts is sin. Various kinds, various categories, really all kinds of sins, all kinds of categories. Basically what he his answer to the Pharisees is that Food can't possibly make you unclean because when the Bible talks about uncleanness, it's talking about sin. And sin is not an issue that deals with your stomach. It deals with the heart. And when you eat food, it never enters your heart. This is something the Pharisees should have known this was always the point of the ceremonial law i think about isaiah chapter 6 what is isaiah chapter 6 verse 5 he say about himself he says i'm a man of unclean lips surrounded by a people of unclean lips was isaiah talking about the fact that they really had dirty mouths that need to be washed? No. What polluted their mouth? Sin. Sin came out of their mouth. And the problem was actually their heart. Their heart was corrupted. And their mouth was simply the organ voicing what was wrong with them. See, Jesus is saying a very obvious point that sinners sin because they're not... Sinners are not termed sinners because of what we do that defiles us. But actually, the very wellspring of our being since the fall is sinful and is polluted. And we see evidence of that every day whenever we see what comes out of us is sin. And we see that this parable, and we're thankful that Jesus explains this parable To his disciples, he explains it to his disciples in kind of a negative way and a positive way. Negatively, he says what doesn't defile a person, and positively, he says what defiles a person. And if the obvious problem is sin, the obvious problem, the negative there, is that the the obvious problem is not the result of things that are outside of us. Look at verse 18 when he explains this. He says, are you not without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. You see this uh, parable, just like all parables, deal with very real-life situations. And Jesus gets pretty graphic. In his first statement, he just says, just what comes in can't go defile you. What comes out does. And then his disciples probe and says, well, what do you mean by that? And Jesus says, well, think about it for a second, okay? When you eat food, It doesn't ever enter into your heart. It enters your stomach. And the word there is expelled as the ESV kind of cleaning it up a little bit. It says that what goes into the heart, what goes in, rather, what goes into the stomach doesn't go into the heart. It goes into the toilet. That's what Jesus says here. I wonder what he could possibly be talking about. This is a pretty graphic illustration of a rather obvious point from the scriptures. And it's not just obvious from people like Isaiah, but it's obvious just from the fact of what the ceremonial law is and of itself. Think about it for just a second. We already said that the Pharisees' laws that they were coming up with They were extensions of a certain principle that really was in the Old Testament. The principle of the need to be clean, of cleansing, of separation, of holiness to worship a holy God. But was God ever really concerned just that they have clean hands, that they eat particular food? that they need to by various, very, following various ceremonies to maybe put on an act in a show that would be pleasing in God's sight. No. At the very heart of the ceremonial law was not just the external regularities that were being performed by people. What was at heart of the ceremonial law was a spiritual reality communicating a spiritual point the spiritual point of something like circumcision that's obviously an outward act of separation a line of demarcation between jews and gentiles but listen to what romans 2:28 and 29 says about circumcision. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. A circumcision, and circumcision rather, is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. What's true of circumcision is really true of the entire ceremonial law. It was meant to teach God's people very specific things about who God is and what God's promises are. By cleansing themselves daily, they were to learn that they need cleansing from sin, cleansing. From unrighteousness, if or in order to worship a holy God. And those cleansings always prepared them for their worship. And their worship was atonement for sin. Read at the very book, very beginning of the book of Leviticus, and you'll see this. It starts off in chapters one through seven, describing the atonement rituals, bloody rituals, for their cleansing oddly enough, didn't really come from water, but by blood. That was always the purpose of the ceremonial law. We get to something, though, at, the, at 19c that might be pretty surprising to us, especially reading this the first time. We read, and then the ESV helpfully has these uh, brackets around it, not not brackets, parentheses, there we go. The word was going to come to me eventually. Where Mark inserts into this, thus he declared all foods clean. The reason why I've been hitting on it so hard that what Jesus is doing here is making a distinction between the traditions of the elders versus the law of God is to prepare you guys in part for this verse because here it would seem that Jesus might be teaching here something that is contrary to God's word. I just told you that the ceremonial law did require certain cleansing rituals and we read if we're reading through Leviticus chapter 11 we'll get to dietary laws a dietary code of the things that they are to eat that are clean foods and the foods that they are to avoid that are unclean foods. Is Jesus here finally this entire time he's been saying, you are breaking God's law. You're, the prophets spoke rightly of you. What you're saying is not of God's word. And then all of a sudden now contradicting God's word. I think it's at this point, maybe especially in light of the theme of the Reformation, to remind ourselves that Jesus is not a revolutionary. Jesus was a reformer. What Jesus ended up accomplishing changed everything and was absolutely revolutionary for how God's people worshiped him. But his entire ministry, what he was doing is he wasn't a revolutionary in sense of throwing and totally flipping the tables of the Old Testament system. Rather, we're told that Jesus was born under the law. He lived in obedience to the law. And Jesus, when he starts off his Sermon on the Mount saying very controversial statements it starts off saying in matthew chapter 5 that i did not come to abolish the law i came to fulfill it what jesus is saying here in mark's insert here is he's saying a principle about the ceremonial law that mark saw This is why it's okay to eat bacon. Mark was seeing a principle here about the ceremonial law that people were missing then. Christ came to fulfill the law, all the ceremonial law and all the aspects of it from dietary laws to sacrificial system to circumcision. All those things pointed to spiritual realities which Christ himself accomplished. Read in your spare time, Hebrews chapter eight through 10, talking about the Old Testament system, how it was shadows typifying realities that were to come. They were taught lessons in the Old Testament as. Galatians chapter three teaches us that we're meant to point the people to God to have their only hope in the coming savior, Jesus Christ. They were to be holy. They were to be washed of all their sins. But water can't wash away your sins. Just as much as baptism 1 Peter chapter three says, verse twenty one, that baptism doesn't save us by a washing off our body off dirt. Baptism saves us because of the promise it pictures of the one who is able to wash our sins away. The blood of the covenant before, the blood of bulls and goats, never had the power in and of itself to pay for sins as vile as ours. Only the blood of Jesus Christ could do that. There would would come a time in redemptive history where God in Acts chapter 10, verse 5, where God would specifically tell Peter when he had a problem eating unclean food and he kept having a heavenly vision of a a whole blanket full being lowered from heaven of all this unclean food that he was being told by God to eat. Acts chapter 10, verse five says, do not call what I've declared holy and good to be unclean. You see, the reason why we don't practice any of the ceremonial system of the Old Testament is because what was being pictured in them was Jesus Christ. And what we have now is no longer pictures of what Jesus Christ would do. What we have is a possession of the very reality of what Jesus Christ accomplished in those things. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says that circumcision, that those people who were physically circumcised They weren't all circumcised yet. Deuteronomy chapter 10, and I have all the references. I tried to include at least most of the ones I'll say in your bulletin so you can refer to this later. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says that those people needed to circumcise their hearts. What did circumcision point to? What promised reality in Christ was circumcision looking forward to? In part, the need for cleansing, the removal of our heart of flesh and being given a a heart of stone and being given a heart of flesh. And if we realize that the obvious problem is sin, and sin is not just following man-made traditions and regulations and externals, which makes God's law awfully easy to keep. From a human perspective. If God's law, the obvious problem, is sin, it's a moral issue. And a moral issue cannot be dealt with by outside performance of any performance, any ceremony. I think this is this we should at this point reflect upon ourselves how often if I was to ask you, if you are a Christian is the immediate response to me that you want to show me that you're a Christian and say, Oh yes, I'm a Christian. I, I, read my Bible every day. I pray regularly. I go to church. I even go to Bible study. I've been baptized. I take the Lord's supper weekly. I do all these things. See True religion has always been a matter of the heart. True religion has never been about the performance of certain rituals as if we're actors in a play and trying to impress God with our performance. Always, it's been about the heart. But the positive thing is, is when we typically say, you know, God knows my heart. Usually our implication is is to say, I might've made a mistake here, but God knows my heart. God knows how sincere I am. God knows how good I am. If God interacted with me, he would see that, you know what? I'm a great guy. I'm trying my best. This is what the Pharisees thought of themselves. Read Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee who comes to the temple to worship the holy God says, God, thank you. Thank you for not making me like this defiled, outside of communion with God, sinner, tax collector. For I do this and I do that. And I think oftentimes we slip into the same mentality. I pray, I go to church, I've been baptized, I'm a Christian. All those things are good things, by the way. And the ceremonies that the Pharisees practiced in the Old Testament context were good things to do. But even back then, we get words like First Samuel chapter fifteen, verses twenty-two and twenty-three, where Samuel, uh, Saul comes up to him and talks about how he's done the sacrifices, and Samuel's response to him is that what God requires of you is not sacrifice, but obedience to his word. Obedience that comes from the heart. When we think about the heart, we think about maybe how sincere we are, how good we are. But the obvious problem that is sin does not positively look like that. The obvious problem is rather a consequence of the inward reality. The outward, the obvious problem of sin is the consequence of an inward reality. Look at verse 21, or rather verse 28. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And well, you might ask yourself, what comes out of a person? Well, what comes out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. And now when you start this list, you might be thinking to yourself that evil thoughts is just one of many things on this list. But actually in the ordering, word ordering, it says that out of the heart of man, evil thoughts. And from evil thoughts come out all sorts of evils. And then we have six plural evils And then six singular evils. The beginning of the list are these abstract concepts of sin, categories of sin. The next six, these very specific instances of concrete sins. And it ends with a summary of all these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Out of the heart comes all sorts of evil thoughts and all sorts of evil things. What sorts of sins fall under this list? What sorts of things come out of a human heart? If God, saw, if God knows your heart, that would be a scary reality. That should be a scary reality because he does know your heart. And we have so many things that I think it's helpful just to pause and reflect on them. We're told that it's sexual immorality come out of the heart. Theft, thieving, all sorts of murders, hatreds, adultery, coveting, wickedness in general. Deceit, sensuality, this is lewd behavior. This is living for pleasure above all else. And maybe it doesn't look like the most confusing one to you, envy in the ESV, but envy there literally says the evil eye. That it says it goes through all these different sins. And then it says, lastly, it is the evil eye. Uh, not lastly, but in this list is an evil eye. An evil eye is a metaphor that portrays the attitude of someone who carefully keeps his eyes on the personal possessions of others out of stinginess, an eye which belongs to others out of greed. The focus is on other people and what other people have. And when we read this list, there should be a certain effect that has on us. Because we know that what he's talking about here, when we go through this list, evil thoughts, all sorts of evil thoughts, all sorts of evil actions. The reason why we sin is because the well is polluted. That's why we're dirty. That's why we do dirty things. That's why we do things that make our environments dirty. Because the problem is within us. If you drink from a polluted well, what do you think you're going to get? Obviously, you're going to get sick. The reason why we sin is because we are sinners. How often, even as Christians, do we try to relegate responsibility to something outside of us? As if the moral problem that we have is due to our environment or our circumstances. We worry about our kids who are growing up in this world that seems to be more and more polluted, even at least outwardly, more polluted and sinful than the previous ages of maybe at least our nation. Don't worry about them being polluted by the world first and foremost. The root problem that we need to focus on is we do not need to be fearful of the world making us dirty. What we need to be focused on is the fact that our own hearts are the very source of all our issues? That if God keeps his promise in Ezekiel chapter 36 and gives us a new heart, that what we have instead is a wellspring of which then good works flow out of it. Now we do deal with corruption in this life, in this remaining corruption lingers with us. But what we have when we come to Christ and we put our trust in him, Jesus Christ truly does cleanse us of our guilt, but he also cleanses us of the pollution of sin. And he starts to work at us in our hearts, working throughout our lives, growing us more and more, cleaning us from sin, and we put it to death throughout our entire lives. You know what we have is a promise of when we die, when we're either in Christ's presence or at the end in glory, we will be made righteous. That our hearts out of it will come only love towards God and only love towards neighbor. And we as Christians have the opportunity of working on that now. Maybe another point of application that I want to, correct unless you heard me wrongly is that people often use this to say what goes in cannot defile me what only what comes out of me does that means i can consume any sort of entertainment i want i can watch any sort of evil out in this world that our parents worry about this the polluting world is completely unfounded well, while the parents' worry should be more about the conversion of their son and daughter, that that's how they avoid truly getting from being corrupted. Because the source is the heart. That this, this does not negate other aspects of scripture. Like one that I've preached, fortunately. So it came to my mind in Philippians chapter 4 when he tells his people to focus not on evil things, but on things pleasing in God's sight. That we need to realize and not be naive that there's still another principle here that we can follow from other places of scripture. Garbage in, garbage out. That that does truly apply to our minds. That what Jesus is talking about here, when he's talking about the heart and that what goes in cannot defile you, he's talking about bacon. We need to be clear on that. But we also need to be clear on the source of the problem. And the source is our own heart. That's why we have so many good promises. Like Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, starting at verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he, Jesus, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I think what we see in this verse is kind of where these two things meet. How does a person become truly defiled? Well, if defiling is by sin and we are born sinners, we're defiled from the get-go. The the Pharisees in most religions teach, teach some sort of, Self help therapy to cleanse yourself, to get yourself cleaned up. Maybe you need to give yourself cleaned up to get ready before you can actually attend church. I've heard people say that. Or that education is really the problem in the world. The problem is ignorance. And what we need is to, if we just educate people, teach people the truth, then they will be clean. They'll do the right things. No, the problem with humanity is in the human heart. And while the problem, how a man is defiled, how a person is made unclean is by sin, first Adam's sin, and then all of our actual sins that just add to it, which give us personal culpability, which God will judge That might be the problem. But the solution is not trying to clean ourselves up. The only solution is in the justifying grace of God. We have to humble ourselves and not be like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who boasts in his works how he's been kept clean and separated from the nasty Gentile world and has not been polluted by it. Rather, we have to come to God like the tax collector, humble ourselves, realize that we are far removed from God. We are unclean in his sight, but we're not unclean in his sight because we haven't washed our hands enough times or that we've eaten the right foods. We are unclean because we are a sinner. And you know what sinners need to do? If you're really unclean, if God, when he looks at your heart, really sees uncleanness and wretchedness and evil of all kinds and all thoughts, you need God's mercy, a mercy that's promised to you in Christ alone, a mercy that promises that through trust in Christ and all he did in his shed blood, His blood will wash away all your sins. He will make you clean. And in the words of Isaiah, your sins, though they are scarlet and stain you. This is Isaiah chapter one. He will make you as white as snow. Looks like times really haven't changed all that much about what the heart of the issue is since the 1500s, has it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you that you instruct us in all righteousness and all godliness. We thank you that you've given us such clarity on who we are. We need that, Lord. We need to know that sin defiles a purpose, sin defiles a person, that sin is defined by breaking God's laws. That sin is not a problem of some environmental factor that resides outside of us. That the problem of the world is not only out there, although it is out there. The problem of the world is us in our own hearts. And we confess, Lord, that we are sinners. And like Jeremiah says, that we are like leopards, unable to change our spots. We cannot change who we are. Blessed be then the Holy Spirit who is drawing sinners to himself today. Sinners who are being drawn to Christ and Christ only to have their sins washed, to be sanctified. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to wash away our sins, Lord. We come and plead for the mercy of God to be dispensed to us that we might be found in Christ and not in Adam, that we be found in Christ and not have to be culpable for all our sins, which truly does make us dirty. And Lord, may you help us as redeemed sinners who have been washed to live in light of that, that we would not commit the same vile sins that dirtied us up and marked out Defined us in our previous life, but that we would live as washed, knowing that any defilement that we now incur, we have a promise that if we confess our sins, our God is merciful and good to forgive us all our sins. We thank you, Lord, and we praise your holy name. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. you'll now stand with me. We will sing God's